Well, it is my honor and privilege to introduce our speaker this morning, uh, Dr. Jonathan Master. Uh, give you a little little background on on John. He um, graduated from Capital Bible Seminary uh, here in Lanham, uh, received his THM degree, and uh, two years ago received uh, or, or so a few years ago uh, his PhD from the University of Aberdeen in England and. Uh, but uh, more importantly, he's served as a pastor uh, in New, both in New Jersey and here in, in Bowie, Maryland, and, and served at Capital Bible Seminary as a, as a theology professor, uh, which is where I met him, actually, uh, at church. And he served both as my pastor and as my professor in seminary. And uh, I've learned a great deal from him. And I know Steve would say the same. He was also Steve's pastor and professor uh, for many years as well. And so uh, it is a great, great honor to have him here to, to bring, the, bring the word to us this morning. And I think the verse I read at the beginning um, from Isaiah 66 is, if I had to sum up the, the thing that John taught me the most uh, in my time uh, getting to spend much time with him, is, is the idea that we tremble at God's word. And, and so I'm really excited that he has the opportunity to share God's, with us word, God's word with us this morning. So, John, would you come? Thanks, Keith. It's great. Uh, really is a privilege to be here, both for the event itself, Steve's installation, which it's an honor to even be a part of, and, uh, and then also just to see some friends uh, from, from days gone by, uh, really Really, really uh, powerful and and, uh, and and a privilege. Um, I you know I arrived last night and uh, I've never I've never actually been here to this uh, congregation and been in a service here. So so I was trying to get a feel for it, uh, what what to expect, how how long should I preach? And so I, I'm sitting with Steve last night at dinner, and and the first thing he said actually before I had a chance to bring it up, he said. You're not, uh, you're not actually going to preach on Acts 19 and 20, are you? Not the whole thing, right? That's a misprint. And I said, well, you know, it's a, you know, touch on a few things in both chapters. It's not a misprint. Uh, really? It's not a misprint? He asked me again. No, really? Two, two chapters? And I said, yeah, well, you know, you'll see, Steve. It'll, it'll be okay. And then, and then not, not two minutes later, he said, just out of nowhere, he said, uh, John, you know, I, I'm really... I'm really becoming convinced. I, I'm, a, I'm a 30-minute man when it comes to sermons. Okay, so he's a 30-minute man. So I'm starting to get a feel for it and, and piece together what to, what to expect. So with those instructions in mind, let's turn to Acts 19. I won't read both chapters, but I do want to read um, part of the middle of the 19th chapter of Acts, and then, and then we will kind of look at a few verses in chapter 20. So I'd like to read Acts 19, beginning at verse 8, going through verse 10, and then we'll pray together and listen to God's word. This is Acts 19, beginning at verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily 
in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Well, let's pray together and look at God's word. Lord, it is a privilege to be in your house with your people and to sing praise to you, to hear your word. Lord, we confess to you this morning that apart from your word, we would not be able to make sense of ourselves or the world in which we live, and we, we also would, would have no understanding of your work in the person of your Son, our Savior. And so we give you thanks for your word this morning. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And truly, we do desire to tremble before your word and to hear from you today. We thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so we do. We ask that we would, you would take your living word and apply it to us. Convict us of sin. Teach us about yourself. Show us your son. Glorify yourself in our midst, we ask. In Christ's name. Amen. There's a, a sermon, a long sermon, that's contained in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is, is actually a long sermon. And at the end of it, at the end of it, the writer to Hebrews has these words. And these are kind of the words that will frame everything we're going to look at today. And, and in a sense, these words are part of what frames my charge to Steve and, and the teaching for all of us. And, and this is what the writer to Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 13, 7. He says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. In other words, what the writer to Hebrews says to that congregation back in the first century is think through those people who instructed you in God's word, and and actually think through what the outcome of that instruction was, and then then seek to imitate that yourself. So what I want to do this morning is to look at one prominent, maybe the prominent, early teacher of the word of God, the Apostle Paul. And I want to look at, at his ministry in one city, the city of Ephesus. He was there for several years. He had an incredible and and significant influence on that city. In fact, really influence on the whole region. And I want to ask the question, uh, how how would we imitate what the Apostle Paul does and, and, and understand that? And how would we consider what the outcome of it was? So in order to do that, we need to look at Acts 19. And I want to look at the Apostle Paul's ministry in Ephesus really from three angles, uh, sort of three lenses to look at this through. And the first is, starting with what Hebrews says, I want to look at the Apostle Paul's ministry in Ephesus and say, what was the outcome of that ministry? Remember Hebrews says, consider the outcome of their faith. So what is the outcome? We'll start at the end. What is the what is the outcome of the ministry of the Apostle Paul as he proclaims and preaches the Word of God? Because I would contend that the writer of Acts has recorded so much about Paul's ministry in Ephesus, both in chapter 19 and in chapter 20. 
in order to serve as a model for ongoing gospel work. The kind of work Steve's going to be doing, I think, is modeled in many respects by Acts 19. So, what is the outcome of Paul's ministry in Ephesus? Well, we see a number of outcomes, actually. The first thing we see, if you turn your attention to Acts 19, and if you look through verse 11, this is a paragraph right after the one that I read, we see that the outcome of Paul's ministry actually took a number of forms, but one, one, one form, one outcome of it was that there was great power associated with it. Now look at this, look at, what, look at what the Lord did. God was doing, it says in verse 11, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even, even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And in fact, some people try to imitate this. This is what happens in verses 13 through 16, but, but they're not able to. And it says in verse 17, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now, I want to be careful here because the result that Paul had, this miraculous healing ministry that Paul has, does not seem to be the norm in the rest of the New Testament, even for Paul. When Paul's in other cities, these things don't happen. Uh, He has people that he has to leave behind because they're sick. He doesn't, he doesn't write to Timothy at the end of his life and say, Timothy, I heard you've had frequent stomach ailments, so send me a handkerchief and I'll try to heal you. He doesn't say that. In fact, what does he say to Timothy? He says, Timothy, you have frequent stomach ailments, so here's what you do. Have a little wine with your water, and, and so that might help. So, so this isn't the, the norm. The actual things that happen, these great healing miracles, don't seem to happen on a regular basis. But what does always happen and what does always accompany the ministry of the Apostle Paul is the ministry of the Apostle Paul is a ministry where God acts in very powerful ways, in ways that are supernatural. Most of the time, do you know what this looks like? Most of the time, what it looks like is Paul sees people's lives completely transformed by the Word of God. When he's writing to the Thessalonians, that's what he says. He says, you know, our gospel didn't just come to you in words, but in power. And the power there isn't like this. It's in fact the power that has transformed them and has made them desire the things of God and has made them repent of sin and turn around in their lives. So I don't want us to get fixated on what happens here particularly. But nonetheless, there is a pattern that what happens here fits into. And that pattern is that one of the effects of the ministry of an authentic servant of God who's preaching the Word of God is that God's power accompanies this. Now, the reason for that, the reason for that is because in the Scriptures, what we see is God's Spirit And God's word are always linked together. So that as God's word is proclaimed, God's spirit is at work bringing life. And that's what happens. And that's what we see here. Now, in Ephesus, it is is 
powerful, it is obvious, it, is, it, it transforms the whole city, really. And this is, this is what we see later on, in, beginning in verse 23, that not only was there, was there power that accompanied this, but, but there was a disturbance. In fact, look at what verse 23 says. About that same time, as all these powerful things are happening, and, it, and, it, and, and Luke is very clear that, that people are giving glory to Jesus for this. Jesus' name is being lifted up as Paul preaches. And, and, yet, and yet, about that time, uh, there arose no little disturbance uh, concerning the way. So, the power of God that accompanies the preaching of the word, that leads people to glorify Jesus, that's the apostolic pattern, that power also disrupts things. It makes things difficult. And actually, if we, if we did read through the rest of the, of the chapter, what we would see is this disruption almost sends the city into an uproar. There's a huge mob that gathers that is really trying to kill Paul and and all his friends, or at least get them taken out of the city. So it's it's incredibly disruptive. But you know, that shouldn't surprise us either. Because when God's word is preached, God's power is at work, transforming people's lives. It's a wonderful thing to be a part of. It's a wonderful thing to observe. It's a privilege. But, But yet, it also has a disturbing, disruptive effect. You know, ministers in the Bible, preachers of God's word, it, they, don't, they don't tend to live calm lives where everyone just considers them upstanding members of the community. That's not, that's not the typical pattern. The typical pattern is the pattern of Isaiah or, or Jeremiah, where people Reject them, and people don't like what they have to say. We see this more and more, don't we? Our beliefs, biblical teaching, isn't simply seen as something that holds up the, the social fabric. It's, it's, it's seen as something that's disruptive. Seen as something that is potentially undermining things that the world considers very, very important. And that shouldn't alarm us. That shouldn't disturb us. We should say, well, that's exactly what the Bible led me to expect. Because in fact, a ministry of God's word is accompanied by power, but it also brings great disturbance. Just this week, in my own little small circle of people, I I encountered two, two people who spoke with me about very serious situations. One was a, a, a nurse, and she said, you know, there, there are uh, some things that are happening in the medical field, and, and I, I, just, I just feel conscience-bound as a Christian. I'm not sure I can participate in these, and, and, I'm, and I'm probably going to lose my job. And then another friend of mine, very mundane thing, he said, you know, some of my best friends are going away uh, for a party. I, I, just, I just don't think I can participate, but it looks like they're going to kind of hold me uh, in contempt because of that. Well, those are, those are just everyday things, but they're ways in which the gospel causes disturbance in the world and in people's lives. You know, Paul said, Paul said, all 
who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a very comprehensive statement, isn't it? All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Jesus said, if they hated me, they rejected me, they'll hate you as well when you stand in my stead. It shouldn't be a surprise to us when we face animosity, when we have to make very difficult choices because of our commitment to God's word. It should not, it should not surprise Steve or any minister of the gospel when people consider biblical teaching a disruption. It doesn't fit neatly into their understanding of how society should work or how their lives should be ordered. It's no surprise. Jesus said, I didn't bring to, come to bring peace, but a sword. And there is a, a deep reality to that that should be sobering to all of us. And we see it here in Acts 19. As wonderful as Paul's ministry in Ephesus was, I don't think if you grabbed him in the middle of it and said, Paul, isn't it great being a minister of God's word? Isn't it great being a pastor? Paul would have said, well, I'm about to get thrown in jail. There's a mob of people outside my door who hate me. It seems like, if anything, I've caused more trouble than I should have. It wasn't easy. We ought not to think it will be easy. If we want comfort, security, peace with the world, well, you... You're going to have to, in some way, abandon biblical teaching. That's not what God calls us to. So that's the first thing. That's the outcome. That's the outcome. And we'll see a little more of the outcome as well in chapter 20. But the outcome is God's power, but also great disturbance. So what was the method? How did Paul minister? What, it, we, might, we might ask it this way. What, what was Paul's daily schedule like? People, people like to ask this of pastors all the time. What, what do you do exactly during the week? I see you Sunday. I understand that part of it. But what's the other part of it that I don't see the rest of the week? So, so what did Paul do? Well, actually, in verse 8, um, it gives us a pretty nice rundown of the kind of things he did. In verse 8 and then again in verse 10. I'm in Acts 19. Here's what, here's what it says. Uh, in fact, it gives us three verbs, three uh, descriptions of Paul's everyday ministry in verse 8. It says, as he entered the synagogue for three months, here's what he did. And then it says later on in the chapter, he continued to do it even after he was out of the synagogue. Here are the three things. It says, he spoke boldly. He reasoned. He was reasoning. And he was persuading people. That's what he did. He spoke boldly, he was reasoning, and he was persuading people. So that's the first outline that it gives us. Now, what do each of these things mean? What do each of these things tell us? Well, the first term, the first verb description that's used, that he spoke boldly, means exactly what it sounds like in English. He, he, he spoke with confidence. He, he, he was clear. He, he didn't back down. You know, one of the great temptations as we're witnessing and as we're sharing the gospel or proclaiming God's word, is to kind of shave off the rough edges. You know, you know someone's going to be offended by this, so you sort of dance around it a little bit. That's not what Paul was doing. 
Paul was boldly proclaiming the word of God. As a matter of fact, this, this word that's used here for spoke boldly, most of the time in the New Testament, it is used of the Apostle Paul. It's, it's, actually, it's actually the word that's first used about him right when he becomes a Christian, when he sees this light and Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul comes to saving faith. That's what it says he does right away. He begins to speak boldly to other people, to declare it openly. There's no, there is no place, really, in the ministry for people to hide what they stand for, to be ashamed of the name of Christ. Remember what Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me before men, then I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. So Paul speaks boldly, and in fact, he requests prayer for this to the Ephesians when he writes to them. In Ephesians 6, at the end of the letter, he says, now listen, I have a few things I want you to pray for, and and, and he uses his exact word, this is what I want you to pray for. I did it when I was with you, and I I want to do it everywhere else I am. Pray, Ephesians 6.20, pray that I I would speak boldly for the gospel. Because it didn't come naturally. It never does. It doesn't come naturally to any one of us. But it was part of what Paul was called to do. And it's part of the example we ought to follow. Now, secondly, it says he reasoned. This term has to do with a discussion or a a debate that someone engages in. But one that's not uh, escalating into some kind of full-blown, anger-filled argument. With all the pride that gets infused into that but rather a somewhat calm reasoning with other people. You see, if you're going to reason with other people, you need to know what you believe. You need to understand how to defend it. That's why it's it's critical that Steve and others who have prepared, prepared for gospel ministry have prepared well, been taught well, because a big part of what you're called to do is to engage with other people in a reasonable way, in a way that's free from pride, and in a way that makes the case for what the Bible says. And this is exactly what it says he does, by the way, in verse 9. In verse 9, when he moves out and and rents this hall, this hall of Tyrannus, to keep teaching, that's what it says he kept doing. I'm reasoning in the hall of Tyrannus, verse 9. But then it also says in verse 8 that he was persuading people. He was, this is different than just reasoning. He's, He's earnestly, in a sense, pleading with them to trust in Christ. And you know, we see some of this later in Acts 20. Because in Acts 20, he says, uh, as, he's, as he's saying farewell to the Ephesian elders that he worked with, he says, I never cease to admonish you with tears. Paul wasn't merely engaging in an abstract argument with people and trying to sort of check off converts in some clinical way. Paul was trying to persuade people of what he knew to be true. And that persuasion, he says, even even involved his emotions in the deepest possible way because he loved them and he he cared for them. And this wasn't wasn't simply an intellectual kind of argument back and forth. It was life and death. Souls were at stake. And so Paul was in the business of 
persuading people with emotion. Now, all of these things, I have to say, all of these things, it's sort of obvious, involve speaking, involve teaching, involve interacting with other people. There's this, there's, there's this phrase you hear that uh, is attributed to all kinds of different people throughout church history, mostly erroneously. Uh, you know, share the gospel, if necessary, use words. Well, Paul didn't follow that. It has to be said. Paul, Paul used words. Paul, Paul was reasoning with people. Paul was persuading people. Paul, Paul spoke boldly. He didn't just live boldly and hope people asked questions of him. He, he spoke. And that's what we should want ministers of the gospel to do. And as a matter of fact, that's what all of us should do. Because that word in Hebrews 13 wasn't just to preachers. Remember those who taught the word of God to you, imitate their way of life. That's to everyone. And so all of us, in fact, ought to follow this pattern, although it is specifically incumbent on those who are engaged in gospel ministry. Jesus said to his disciples in Mark 2, listen, I didn't didn't really come to heal people. They said, stay here. You know, people are, you're drawing a large crowd. And he said, no, my, my, my job is to preach. That's Jesus himself who gave that mandate. So that's the method. That's what Paul did on a day-to-day basis. We saw the outcome. We see the method. Now the question is, what's the content? What is the content of Paul's preaching or teaching or reasoning or persuading? Well, there are a couple of terms that were given. In 19.8, you might have seen this. It said he was persuading them about the kingdom of God, telling them about God's purposes in history, telling them about God's rule over all the earth, telling them about God's sovereignty in every aspect of life. In fact, Paul did this to his dying day. At the end of Acts, it says, this is what Paul was doing when he was in Rome in prison. It said he was welcoming people in and and he was teaching them about the kingdom of God. So this is a kind of broad label for Paul teaching everything about what God is doing. But there's a little more specific detail given in Acts chapter 20. So I'd invite you now to turn to Acts 20 and to see what is what Paul says there. So just a page over in your Bibles, let me look at Acts 20, 27 and 28. Here's what Paul says about his ministry. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Let's just stop there for a minute. Paul taught the Bible. He taught the whole Bible to all the people that he had the opportunity to teach the Bible to. He didn't teach his agenda. He didn't teach his counsel. He taught the entire counsel of God. This is the model for gospel ministry. You can can find any number of people. Some of them stand behind pulpits. Some of them don't. You can find any number of people giving any number of messages. But the message that God's 
ministers are supposed to declare is the Bible. The teaching in the church should be from the Bible. It shouldn't just be from a few isolated parts of the Bible. The whole counsel of God. Now, now Paul is so clear about this, it's amazing that that we've missed it or we forget it or we think this is a secondary priority or something that would be nice in a church but is not essential. It's it's absolutely essential. See, See, Paul says to Timothy when he's writing to him near the end of his life, he says, Timothy... Here's one of the main things you're called to do. You're you're called to preach the word. You're, you're, You're called to give attention to the sacred writings, which are able to make one wise unto salvation. And that's what he did in Ephesus, the whole counsel of God. Now, the benefit of the whole counsel of God the blessing to you if you're sitting in the pew and, and, and really the challenge to someone who's standing behind a pulpit is if you're preaching the whole counsel of God and you're preaching it well and you're preaching it faithfully, then it really keeps you from ignoring things that are controversial, that might be difficult for people to hear. Listen, we could all pretty easily figure out what passages in the Bible those outside would like to hear. If you want to preach a sermon that everyone's going to love, preach something on, you know, judge not lest ye be judged. Wonderful. Everyone loves that. But, but the whole counsel of God, the whole counsel of God, which is able to make you wise unto salvation, but also convicts you of sin, that's what Paul says in 2 Timothy is able to make you thoroughly equipped for every good work. Ministers of the gospel cannot shrink from teaching the entire counsel of God. If they do, they are doing nothing less than abandoning what the apostles have said and really abandoning Jesus himself. Because this is Christ's word. And this is Christ's way of feeding his sheep. These are Christ's commands. Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. My sheep hear my voice. They know me. And that's how we learn who God is. That's how we hear from Jesus. That's how Jesus exercises authority over the church, is through the word of God. And Paul preached the whole counsel of God. But then there's another way it gets summarized in verse 32. And I don't want you to miss this. This is chapter 20 as well. In verse 32, here's what Paul says as he's leaving these dear, beloved Ephesian elders. He says, Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. As Paul leaves them with this blessing, this benediction, he says, remember, I I preached the whole Bible to you. I didn't shrink. But then he says, I commend you to God, and I commend you to the word of his grace. Because you know what you find if you read the whole Bible? Not just picking parts you like, a verse here and there that doesn't make you feel too bad and inspires you for the day. But but reading the whole Bible, what, what you find is that at the core of it, it is a message 
of God's grace to sinful people. The Bible, if you take it seriously, will will rest very uncomfortably with you in in one sense because because it exposes our sin. And and there there are sins in our lives, sins that we take for granted, sins that we frankly love and think are are, 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 are part of who we are, that, that the Bible will call us to account for. God calls us to account. But yet, but yet, then what we find is that God offers forgiveness of sins to those who trust in Christ. He offers a completely new life. He offers eternal life to those who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. So so that's the thing about the whole counsel of God is it is is the word of his grace. And Paul knew that it's by grace that we're saved. And Paul knew that the grace of God has appeared to all men and it teaches us to deny ungodliness, as was read for us earlier in Titus. Titus. And Paul knew who is sufficient for these things, but I am a minister by God's grace. He knew that his ministry, he knew that his message, he knew that people's salvation depended on God's word of grace to them. This is why it's good news. This is why it's called the gospel. Because ultimately... Anyone who stands as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, teaching the whole counsel of God, is teaching and proclaiming day by day, week by week, the grace of God to sinners. What an astounding message that you and I are far worse than we can ever imagine. And that actually at the core of who we are, By nature, we are at enmity with God, against him. We don't love his commands, we hate them. And yet God, because of his love, has given us his son, that we might receive forgiveness, and that we might be changed. And so perhaps this is the way we should end our study this morning. With this benediction, both to you as a congregation and more specifically to Steve as he's installed here as a pastor. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this day and for the way in which you have given gifts to your church, including pastors and teachers, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the Spirit. Oh, Father, I do ask that all of those who are here would be drawn to you and to your grace. And I ask especially for Steve that you would would keep him as a minister of your grace 
May he continue to walk in faith, keep him from sin, keep him from dishonoring the name of Jesus. May he be faithful in following the pattern that is laid down for us in Scripture. May we be faithful in listening to him as he follows that pattern. Oh God, we are in need of your grace. He is in need of your grace. And so we ask of you that you would give it to us. And we know that as we come to you, we are approaching the throne of grace where you promise to give us grace in our time of need. Grant this to us and grant us a fuller appreciation for your Son, our Savior, our Advocate, our High Priest, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.